You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Today's scripture comes from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have to let go of the commands of God, and you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about his parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Morning, church family. Thank you, Brittany, for reading our, our text this morning. And uh, let's, let's get right in. Let's go to the word in prayer. Go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you today uh, wanting to hear from you. Would you meet us, God, in the midst of our, of our hurry, in the midst of the busyness and complexity of life? Lord, would you take the truths that we, we have just read and that we will look over, Lord, and sink them deep within us? Give us a, a magnificent picture of moral purity as you define it. Challenge our preconceived notions. And Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Did you wash your hands? 
This is a question that I feel like is on an infinite loop, near infinite loop in our household. I don't know if you're there right now. <sighs> Did you wash your hands? You know, I didn't think that maybe part of the, uh, the role of parent would involve being a hand-washing cop, but uh, that's where we are. That's what happens, right? And so, uh, well, not only with... Um, not only asking that question, but the song, the Daniel Tiger song, you know, flush and wash and be on your way. I'm sorry that if that's now stuck in your head, I give that to you. But uh, I, yeah, I didn't realize that part of our role would be in hand washing cop, even to the point where, you know, the child emerges either from the bathroom or is, or is uh, preparing to come to the dinner table and you're like, did you wash your hands? And they're like flinging water droplets at you or like touching you with their moist hands saying like, yes, I in fact have washed my hands. Thank you for that. Oh, well, here in Mark 7, we are confronted by another set of hand washing cops. Can we call them that? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law whose concern is for Ritual purity, and that concern puts them at odds with Jesus and his disciples, but there's, there's more than meets the eye. For in this story, we come, to face, we come face to face with our own law-ishness and lawlessness. The, our law-ish hearts and our lawless hearts. And like the prophet Jeremiah, we cry out, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And like Paul, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Please turn with me, if you haven't already, to Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. And Mark, the gospel writer who faithfully we believe recorded the memories of Peter has been assembling this magnificent mosaic of the life of Jesus as we have gone along. He has been focused particularly on his identity as the unique son of God in the most recent passages. First in Mark 6, 1 through 19, we see three instances of what we've called prophets without honor. Jesus, who is first rejected by his hometown, Nazareth, then the disciples who he sends out powerfully to proclaim and practice the gospel, but helps them to anticipate the rejection that they will face. And then John the Baptist, who speaks truth to power and suffers the ultimate rejection of the loss of his life as a result. Then in what follows in verses 30 to 56 of that chapter, Christ's feeding of the 5,000 and his walking on water shows that he is more than a prophet. Yes, he is the Lord of the Sabbath, the good shepherd, the bread of life, the great I am, and the great physician. Well, starting here in chapter seven, Mark actually returns to this theme of the mounting opposition that Jesus has been facing. Last seen in this whole story surrounding Beelzebul, if you can think back to that in chapter three. This mounting, increasing opposition that he has faced, particularly at the hands of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, and that's where we find him here, confronting Jesus. And in so doing, they reveal actually our law-ish hearts. Let's pick up the story in verse one. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. 
When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. And so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Here, right off the bat, we see that a delegation was sent from Jerusalem to look into this Jesus matter. And the fact that they gathered around Jesus, it might be a subtle hint, but it suggests that they come with hostile intent, perhaps even echoing Psalm 2, verse 2, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. You know, how one's disciples conducted themselves was a reflection upon the rabbi that they followed. And in this case, they were observed, the disciples, eating food with hands that were defiled. I think it would be good to notice how many times that word appears in this text, whether defiled or unclean, impure, depending on your translation, at least six times. But this doesn't come out of nowhere in Mark's narrative. Think about this. This theme of holiness, of purity, and it's first it first appears to us in the, the, sending of, the anticipation of the sending of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in chapter one. And then in Jesus' casting out of impure spirits in chapters one and three, curing leprosy, eating with impure sinners, healing the woman who was unclean from years and years of bleeding and suffering. And yes, raising a dead girl to new life. And now this theme comes to a head as Jesus replaces ritual purity with purity of the heart. That's a little bit of a a preview of where we're going. But this powerfully prepares the way for his ministry in what we will see next, that is, territories that were considered at the time impure, Gentile regions. That's what we see in chapters 7, verse 24, through chapter 8, verse 10. But back to the passage at hand. The word for food here is actually bread. As the bread of life, Jesus had just miraculously provided an abundance of bread to more than 5,000 with plenty to spare. And now the religious leaders wanted to squabble over the improper handling of bread. But this was more than a mere health code violation. And the fact that Mark had to provide some additional explanation reveals that his audience included a significant number of Gentiles who may have been unfamiliar with the traditions of the Jews. The disciples were not guilty of breaking the law instituted by by Moses, but rather later traditions that had been added as a safeguard around the law so that the Jews did not even come close to falling off the cliff. Does that make sense? Ritual washing, not only of hands, but of things like utensils and containers and so forth. This made the religious leaders more like maybe border guards is a better analogy than hand-washing cops. Making sure that the proper traditions, delineations were observed. That word too, tradition, is another key word appearing five times in this text. In fact, ceremonial hand-washing was only required of the priests when they ate holy food according to the law, but the Pharisees had extended this rule to include all people and all food. To the Pharisees, going through the marketplace was to risk potential contamination and impurity, although they loved the praise that they got when they went through the marketplace. But to Jesus, the marketplace was the place where he, just look back in chapter six, 
Verse 56, the marketplace is where he went through and met with the people and poured out his miraculous healing. As the shepherd king pouring out his restoration upon the people. Look at how Jesus responded in verses six through eight. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. This is really the first time in Mark's gospel where Jesus publicly denounces the religious leaders. And he does so by quoting Isaiah 29, verse 13. If you think back to the book of Isaiah, the prophet had announced God's judgment upon Israel for its disobedience, its idolatry, which had included making their hearts calloused in the process. I was sitting on the, on the couch yesterday and my son came up and felt my bare feet and said, what are those? I'm like, thanks, Sam. Well, now you all know too. So anyway, you get the picture though. Picture the, a calloused heart, a hard heart. In Isaiah 29, the prophet exposes Israel's blind leaders for their pretentious worship and their pursuit of their own traditions, all while having hearts that are far from God. Jesus saw in the Pharisees the same kind of hypocrisy that Isaiah calls out for two reasons. The first is that their actions are an outward show that does not come from the heart. And the second is that their teachings are not from God, but instead reflect human traditions. Takumba Adayamo writes, the essence of hypocrisy is offering lip service rather than practicing heart service, obeying human scruples rather than God's law. I'm sure they would have felt they were holding on to human traditions so that they could hold on even more tightly to the commands of God. But what Jesus says is that by holding on to human traditions, the commands of God have actually slipped through their fingers. Verse nine, and he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your own tradition so that you have handed, so that, that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. To make his point here, Jesus quoted some of the very commands of God. Honor your father and mother. There's a quotation of Exodus 20, verse 12. It is the first commandment with a promise. Jewish tradition held that this was the highest commandment that was given governing human relationships. Violation of this command could put one at risk of being disinherited. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death is a quotation from Exodus 21, 17. It shows how seriously this, this command was to be taken. And part of how the people were to honor their father and mother was being responsible even for the, not just the personal responsibility, but also for the financial responsibility of caring for them as they aged. And that's where Corbin comes in. 
No, not Corbin Dallas, the name of Bruce Willis's character in The Fifth Element. I'm not sure if your mind went there, but mine does. I might be dating myself, perhaps, with that reference, but I, I, I digress. Corbin, this is a Hebrew, how do I put it? It's like a Hebrew loan word, in essence. It has to do with, it's a, it was a Jewish tradition of setting aside a certain amount as a gift to God, a gift to be given to God, but at a later time. Meaning that it was still in one's possession, but it was earmarked for that purpose. Does that make sense? Making the claim that these funds were already earmarked for God absolved them of the responsibility of using them to care for one's parents, which was a violation of the law to honor your father and mother. It's like saying, ah, those funds are already dedicated, they're already set aside, already earmarked for that purpose, I can't help you. Think about the pains that people go through today to look for tax loopholes. (laughs) This tradition was like a loophole that allowed people to shirk their God-given responsibility of caring for and protecting the weak and defenseless, in this case, their own parents, as they aged. And you do many things like that. This was just one example among many of the ways that they disregarded vitally important aspects of the law to follow human traditions, thus revealing the true condition of their heart. And yet this passage should cause us to ask some revealing and penetrating questions of our own. The New Living Translation translates verse six, their worship is a farce for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. In what ways are we in danger of our worship actually turning out to be a farce? Are there ways in which we pay lip service to God but have hearts that are actually far from him? And even more than that, what man-made ideas do we teach as if they are the commands of God? What human traditions have we actually enshrined in our essentials? I would love for us to spend some time chewing on that among our ethos communities this week as we think through those types of things. One example that comes to mind, I don't know how good of one this is, but I have heard Christians state definitively, whether on the one side or the other of this issue, that you should tithe either based on the gross or on the net. Have you, that might be an internal squabble that you're not even familiar with, but maybe, maybe you are. But I've heard some very strong, some strong opinions on that, almost to the point of saying that this is a conviction. Is it? Maybe well-intentioned, the heart behind that is wanting to give more sacrificially to God. And yet we create a barrier, we create perhaps a a boundary around that particular law, like the Pharisees themselves. Maybe you can think of other examples this past, or this upcoming week. The fact of the matter is that if we discover a tradition or practice that is in contradiction to scripture even, it must go. No matter how much of a sacred cow it is. But these first few, few verses reveal an even bigger problem, and that is our law-ish hearts. This has gone by many terms over the years, from rule-keeping to religiosity to legalism. 
And just as the Pharisees and teachers of the law prided themselves in their external religious activities, so can we. And we are so good at looking the part. But their problem and our problem is not on the outside. It's on the inside. And that's where Jesus goes next. Our lawless hearts. Look at verses 14 and following. Then again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. We'll pause there. When Jesus turned to the crowd and said to them, listen to me, I think in a way it recalls the Shema. Hear, O Israel, listen to me. And in sharing this little parable that packs a powerful punch, Jesus showed that the main problem of defilement is not external, but is what resides in the human heart. These laws were focused on God's holiness. Leviticus 11.44 says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. But what Jesus does here essentially is do away with the entire framework for food laws and ritual purity in the Old Testament. Only someone exercising God's own authority could do that. And that is what Mark has been keen on showing us all along. Jesus is the unique and authoritative Son of God and Son of Man who embodies God's very presence on earth and alone has the divine authority to redefine the nature of holiness for the people of God. True to form, the disciples come back seeking more explanation. Look at verses 17 and on. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared, all foods clean. Jesus got alone with the disciples. We've seen him do this before. In fact, maybe some parallels with the parable of the soils. And gives them more instructions on the, the importance of a pure heart. And their failure to understand continues this theme that we have seen even back to chapter 6, verse 52, and one that we'll see continue to pick up in Mark's gospel. The statement included in parentheses in verse 19 emphasizes that certain foods or unclean hands were not what defile our relationship with God. It is our impure heart. I thought the ESV study Bible did a great job of capturing the essence of these verses here. I'm just going to quote this at a little length, but the Mosaic ceremonial laws distinguished between clean and unclean foods. Their purpose was to instill an awareness of God's holiness and of the reality of sin as a barrier to fellowship with God. But once defilement of the heart is thoroughly removed and full fellowship with God becomes a reality through the atoning death of Jesus, the ceremonial laws have fulfilled their purpose and are no longer required. Though, as seen in Acts 10 and 11, it took several years for the disciples to understand this. <laughs> That's so true, isn't it? We see that play out over the course of the pages of, of Acts and heading into the early church. Verse 20, he went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. 
For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Here in just these short, tightly woven verses, Jesus gives 13 characteristics of the evil that flows from our lawless hearts. I found Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist, I found him really helpful in thinking through these 13 characteristics. Evil thoughts. This is what sets the stage for all of the characteristics that follow. Sexual immorality. This includes any sexual sin that is contrary to the will of God, whether premarital, extramarital, and unnatural sexual behavior. Theft is taking from another what is not yours, the eighth commandment in Exodus 20. Murder is taking an innocent life, the sixth commandment. Adultery is violating the marriage covenant by engaging in sexual behavior mentally, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, or physically with someone you are not married to. The seventh commandment. Greed is desiring more of the ex- at the expense or exploitation of another, the 10th commandment. Malice is behavior that is deliberately wicked. Deceit is dishonesty and cunning treachery. Lewdness is a shameless living that is lacking in moral discernment or restraint. Envy or jealousy is a lack of satisfaction that always wants more, an insatiable appetite for more. Slander or blasphemy, depending on your translation, is speaking evil of man or of God. Arrogance is pride or haughtiness. And folly is senselessness or spiritual insensitivity. All of these are described as evils and come from within us, revealing that our hearts are desperately wicked that our hearts are lawless. Our hearts are rotten to the core. What is the solution to our law-ish hearts and our lawless hearts? Here's another way of thinking about this. The religious leaders, like most Jews in the first century, viewed sin like a germ. It was contact with others that could lead to infection. We might have a very vivid understanding of this type of concept right now, given the pandemic and what's happening around us, but we actually brush up against similar views today when it comes to viewing people as if they are a morally blank slate, that it is what what one is exposed to or how one is raised that affects whether they turn out good or bad in the end. But Jesus taught that sin is not like a germ or a product of one's environment. It is more akin to a cancer. Sin is like a cancer growing within us regardless of who we are or how much we might appear to have it all together. And cancer within us is far harder to deal with. It cannot be avoided simply by keeping our distance. We need radical spiritual surgery that will change us from the inside out. The solution to our law-ish hearts 
and our lawless hearts is Christ's lavish heart. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Hear this, church. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus loved us and gave himself for us by pouring out his very life on the cross. This is at the heart of God's gospel of grace. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And 1 John 1.7, the end of that verse says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. In this magnificent process, we are actually given a new heart as pictured by the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It is out of this new heart that the desire to pursue holiness flows. Jesus then calls us to live lives of holiness, not based on what we do, but because of what he has done. Because of his finished work on the cross, once and for all. And yet, even for those of us who trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, we recognize, if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize the tendency in our own heart to slip back into lawishness. thinking that we need to continue to earn God's favor or perform in order to stay in his good graces. But this comes into direct contradiction with Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Yes, let us see sin for what it truly is, a personal affront to a holy God but let us see Jesus for who he really is, the one who loved us, Galatians 2, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. At the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. Our sins are paid for. Stop trying to pay the debt yourself because every time we do, we ignore the cross and we minimize his perfect sacrifice for sin. Church, let us embrace grace. Let us revel in his grace, soak in his grace, and when we are done, embrace grace even more. Don't stop thinking about it. Don't stop reading about it, cherishing it. Realize we'll never fully understand it. And yes, as recipients of God's amazing grace, let us be quick to show grace to others, to extend God's grace to those around us, those who are in desperate need of, of this life-giving message of God's grace. Mob people with it. Show it when we don't feel like it. Show it when it doesn't make any sense. Show it when we feel like withholding it. Show grace to others because he has first shown grace to us. Church, once more, the solution to our law-ish hearts, and yes, our law-less hearts, is Christ's lavish heart, his heart that sent him to the cross. And in so doing, made purification for our sins. Jesus then calls us to lives of holiness, not because of what we do, but 
because of what he has done. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise that, that even in the midst of this picture of things like ritual, purity, and the washing of hands, you give us this amazing view of your gospel of grace. Thank you, Lord, for going to the cross, for giving of yourself in love, and for declaring it is finished. Help us to not try to add any more to your finished work on the cross. May we delight in you and revel in your grace. And Father, as we worship you, as we go from this place, Lord, would you sink these truths even deeper within us? And Father, for those that may be here and never having trusted in you for their own salvation, Lord, would today be the day? Would you do that heart surgery that only you can do? And would they trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross? We love you, Lord. We thank you for the call that you have placed upon us to live holy lives because of what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.